morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading Mark's Gospel together, and this morning we come to the third in a series of three miracle stories uh, that Mark has told in a row. Um, we saw that Jesus calmed the sea. Um, we saw that Jesus healed the tormented man from among the tombs. And now we're going to see Jesus take on suffering and mortality and death. I like to think of this part of Mark's gospel as a, as one of those uh, paintings, the triptych. Um, and I like to think of it as a triptych that's painted around the theme of fear and faith. In fact, I'd be really surprised if someone in the Middle Ages didn't paint these three miracles in that way. And as we're about to hear this, this third story, this third panel, is actually two stories in one. So let me read from the end of Mark 5 for us. I'm going to read uh, Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
when he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now um, what seems, from our perspective, um, to be impossible and hard to imagine how you could do it. We ask that you would use this word that we have read and heard together, that we're going to talk about together, that you would use this word to meet us, every one of us, in the places where we are this morning. Those of us who are living in fear or under suffering, those of us who aren't. Those of us who are Christians and those of us who aren't. Those of us who feel near to you and those of us who don't. Father, meet every one of us in the place where we are and show us the grace of this Jesus who is at the center of these stories. Show us his grace, his goodness, his mercy and love and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, several years ago, uh, I watched a documentary uh, on Andy Warhol. Um, I think it was part of the American Masters series on PBS. And there was a moment in this documentary that has stuck with me. It was about the aftermath of Valerie Salonis attempt to kill Warhol in June of 1968. I don't know if you know about that, but he was shot. She shot him, and, and Warhol was seriously injured. Two bullets passed through his stomach, his liver, his esophagus, his lungs. They actually had to massage his heart to get it revived again, to get him going again. And in some of his first public statements after this assassination attempt, this is what Warhol said to a reporter from the Village Voice. And this, this is what has stuck with me uh, about that documentary. Warhol said, since I was shot, everything is such a dream to me. I don't know whether or not I'm really alive, whether I died. It's sad. Life is a dream. I wasn't afraid before. And having died once, I shouldn't feel fear, but I'm afraid. I don't understand why. I'm afraid of God alone, and I wasn't before. So I don't know exactly what Warhol believed about God. I don't know what his faith was or wasn't, but I do know that that line that he spoke, I'm afraid of God alone, and I wasn't before. I know that line captures the mixture of fear and faith that runs pretty deeply through every human being, whether we say we believe or not. I mean, if you've ever really, really been afraid of something, or if you've ever felt just completely or dangerously or hopelessly out of control of a situation, my guess is that you probably also thought about God in that moment. Even for just a little bit, even if it made no sense to you when you thought about him. And the two main characters in the story that we just read and heard together, um, they are terribly afraid and they are terribly, terribly out of control. And they both, in their own tentative and fearful and even confused ways, come to Jesus in hope. And his response is to call them out of their fear and into faith. 
So I think this is a story that every one of us need to hear, starting with me, because Jesus, I believe, meets people like us always in that intersection of fear and faith. Some of us here this morning have faced death and mortality up close. For some of us, that's been because we have faced our own mortality, our own potential death. For others of us, it's because we have faced these realities in the life of someone that we love. And most, many more of us, I think, probably all of us, certainly to one degree or another, have experienced suffering, either in glancing quick blows or under the heavy weight of it for a time, maybe even for years. Nobody, nobody gets a smooth ride in this world. So Jesus has now made his way back from the other side, back from the trip that Pastor Jeff walked us through last week. He is back now in home territory, and not surprisingly, a huge crowd has gathered around him again. We've seen that all throughout Mark's gospel up until this point. But despite the size of the crowd, there's this guy who has made his way through that throng, and he has fallen at Jesus' feet. And this guy has a name, and he has a title. Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue. That means he's an important man. He's someone who is held in high regard. Now, in ancient cultures like the one that Jesus and Jairus live in, people with status like Jairus, people with standing like Jairus, don't fall down in the dirt in front of other people on the road. They don't. And more than that, the last time Jesus was in a synagogue, the last time in Mark's story that a synagogue and Jesus get mentioned at the same time, which, by the way, was probably the synagogue that Jairus is a ruler in, the last time that ever happened, it ended with a death plot hatched against Jesus. So this is a strange meeting. Something, obviously, is cutting across all of the stuff that would normally have kept a man like Jairus out of the dirt and away from someone like Jesus. Something powerful is cutting across all of that stuff. And so we find out at least some of what it is right quick. Jesus tells, he tells Jesus that his little daughter is at the point of death. And he asks Jesus to come and lay hands on her so that she can be made well and live. So here, Here's where Jairus is. He is at that intersection of fear and faith. That place that we often find ourselves. He's at the end of his rope. He's desperate. He's afraid his little girl is going to die. And he has hope that Jesus might be able to help. So I think this is important to just for a minute think about this picture because there is a lot of stuff that clutters up our lives, that clutters up the way between us and Jesus, that keeps us from throwing up a desperation shot like this. I mean, that's what he's doing. This is at the end of the game, and he's just throwing up a shot that he hopes will go in. And there's a lot of stuff that keeps us from doing stuff like that, just like it was for Jairus, right? We don't want to look stupid. We wonder what other people will think of us. We don't see the point because we're not sure if he cares. We're cynical. We're jaded. We're resigned. It seems cliche. 
And all I can say about those things right now is that any of those reasons, any of the ones that Jairus had, they seem really lame and thin given how the story ends for him. Not worth it at all. And here's the truth, church. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who Mark is telling us he is, then all of those reasons that we might have that I talked about or any others that we might want to throw in, all of them are pretty lame and pretty thin given how the true story of the world ends. But for now, it's Jesus and Jairus, and he begs Jesus to come. And Jesus' response is immediate. Let's go. So the two of them and this huge crowd start making their way to Jairus' house, and that's when Mark introduces us to someone else who is throwing up a desperation shot. This person shares Jairus' deep concern in the face of death. This person is also at the end of their rope, and this person also thinks that Jesus might be able to help. This person is also at that intersection between fear and faith. But that's where many of these similarities end. Mark piles on one description after another after another, and the result is after the end of this really thorough introduction to this person, we have a picture of someone who is completely removed from society, completely alienated, and completely alone. Mark says there was a woman And, of course, in the first century, this immediately puts her in a very different category than Jairus, a man, a man with status. This woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, Mark doesn't say exactly what it was that caused this, exactly what the condition was, but this is what we do know, that this condition meant that, according to the law, this woman was perpetually considered unclean. It excluded her from common worship for sure, but it also excluded her from normal physical contact with other people. For her to touch someone was for them to become unclean, at least for a time. So just think about how this woman had to go about her day just to do the normal stuff like eat. She either had to lie about who she was And what was going on with her? Or she had to completely rely on the benevolence of others. I'm guessing she probably did a little bit of both in her life. But there's even more about her. She had suffered much, Mark says, under many physicians. And she had spent all that she had. And she hasn't gotten better. She has only gotten worse. This woman had been taken advantage of. She'd gone from one doctor to another trying to figure out how to be healed, how to be cured, and no one's able to help her. She has suffered from this disease for sure, but she has also suffered from all of these fake cures. So on top of all of the social suffering and the physical suffering, she is poor. And it's hard for many of us, maybe not all of us, But it's hard for many of us to imagine how alone and how ostracized and how fearful and how shameful this woman felt. The emotional toll of not being able to touch someone else without shame or guilt 
or derision. The physical toll of being poor and trying to just make it every single day. The overwhelming weight of her own frail and failing mortality. And she knows there's really only one place this is going to end. But she thinks that Jesus can help. She's heard reports about Jesus, and so here she is, illicitly snaking her way through this large crowd, touching all kinds of people that she's not supposed to be touching. And her plan is to quietly creep up behind Jesus while he's walking and just touch his clothes. It's a beautiful and almost strangely magical plan. Because she's convinced, if I even just touch his garments, if I can just get a nick on it, I will be made well. So in this way, she is like Jairus at that intersection of fear and faith. Her hope in Jesus has cut against all of the things that would have otherwise kept her away from Jesus. And they were formidable. But she has no, no resignation. She has no cynicism She's right there. So let me say something about this. I, 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 think that, I think that her desire to see Jesus, her desire to seek him and to see him in the middle of her suffering, just if she could be near him, maybe even touch him, I think that desire is a desire that's wired into every one of us. You, you don't have to be a Christian to want God in moments like this. You just have to be a human. <laughs> Our desire as humans to be freed from death, to be freed from all of the polluted and rancid and violent accompaniments to death like loss and sickness and suffering and loneliness. Our desire to be free from all of that stuff is at its very core a desire to try to get near Jesus and touch him if we can. Now, I know, believe me, I know that we don't call it by that. <laughs> I know we don't often think of that. Maybe it's the first time you've ever thought about that. We call it all kinds of things. And to be honest, we respond differently a lot of times. We respond to that desire to be free from death and suffering and shame and pain all kinds of ways that are harmful. Some of us try to medicate ourselves from it. Some of us try to entertain ourselves into forgetting about it. We work so hard that we don't even have time to think about it. We seek nonstop pleasure to sate that gnawing, plotting, zombie-like presence in our life. We do all kinds of strange things to try to forget about our mortality. You ever wonder why our culture is so obsessed with procedures and products that are marketed to make us look younger, to take years off of our lives. You know why we love that stuff? Because we want to escape death and all of its horrible companions. We want to cheat every last one of them if we can. And you know, we've tried most of this stuff, if not all of this stuff. I know I have. And so I know, and maybe you know how shaky and thin these things are for the, they just stand in really for the thing that we really need. 
Because we all know deep inside us as humans that death and all of the awful tendrils of death in our world, we know deep inside of us that these are things that only God can handle. We cannot. I'm afraid of God alone, Warhol said, and I wasn't before. Church, we desire wholeness and we desire peace because wholeness and peace really exist. If we could just reach out and maybe just touch the hem, maybe we could get some of that. So we, we look an awful lot like this woman. And she reaches out. (laughs) And she touches his clothes. And as soon as she does, she feels in her body that she has been healed of that disease. Just as soon as it happens, she knows she has been healed. It must have been amazing for her to know that in an instant. (laughs) Her whole life has changed in an instant. But here's the thing. What happens? She immediately starts snaking away the way she came. You know, but Jesus knows what's happened, and almost inexplicably, he stops and he asks, who touched me? (laughs) Right? He decides to stop walking to Jairus' house, and I can only imagine the fear in Jairus' eyes, the panic that he felt, the desperation that filled him when Jesus just stopped walking. I mean, his daughter is about to die, and Jesus is stopping to see who touched him in this huge crowd. It seems like such a costly, costly decision. Since his disciples don't know who touched him, in fact, they mock Jesus for even asking who touched him, Jesus scans the crowd until he sees her, and of course she's looking right at him. And in a second, they both know what's passed between them. And it's amazing, isn't it? Even though she's been healed, this woman is still completely terrified. Her plan only half worked. And now in front of all of these people, she's going to have to admit that she touched all of these people. That she didn't stay out of the way like she should have. She's going to have to admit that she even touched the teacher. She touched him. So there she is in fear and trembling on the ground in front of Jesus. And what I want to ask is why? Why? You know, why did Jesus care who touched him? Why did he care? Why did he care enough to stop walking, to put his own reputation at risk, to put Jairus' daughter's life at risk? Why couldn't he just let her go? I'll tell you what I think. I think that Jesus wasn't finished caring for that woman. I think that her healing wasn't complete yet. It wasn't just the disease that needed to be cared for. No, no, it was the alienation and the fear and the ostracism and the shame. Those things needed to be gone. They needed to be taken away from that woman. They needed to be destroyed as well. So this woman who's lived for more than a decade out on the margins alienated and alone and fearful, living with shame and guilt and scorn and no doubt lots of anger, 
Jesus now has her right where he wants her. Now she is at the center of everything. And everyone is quiet. She has moved in from the outside, from creeping and from sneaking. And now she is at the center of Jesus' attention and the center of Jesus' affection. And this woman who doesn't have a name gets a name. He calls her his daughter. And he makes it clear to her, to this new daughter, and he makes it clear to the crowds and to us that it wasn't some magic clothes touch that healed her. It was her faith in him. And it was not super strong faith. <laughs> it was a sneaky, creeping, I hope I don't get caught faith. But church, it was more than enough. He says, daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. Go in peace with a restored body and a restored life. Church, faith is that conduit of Jesus' healing. It's the conduit of his grace. We definitely have to reach out. We definitely have to reach out with our hands open in faith. But you need to know it doesn't need to be faith that's turned up to 11. It doesn't need to be faith that other people are going to write books about one day. Apparently, even a I hope I don't get caught faith is more than enough for Jesus. And when we reach out in faith, he meets us with everything that we need. But then there's Jairus. Too much time. Too much time has passed. And someone comes from his house and quietly takes him aside and says, your daughter has died. So don't trouble the teacher anymore. Jairus' worst fears have overtaken him, and you can just feel the despair creeping in around the edges of his soul. But Jesus overhears the conversation, and he gives him the strangest and sturdiest of commands. Do not fear only believe. <laughs> Do not fear, only believe. Come away from fear. Trust me. Which, you know, of course, in that moment probably sounds to Jairus like someone says, hey, here's a new pair of sandals. Why don't you, you know, walk to the moon? It just doesn't seem possible. And when they arrive at the house, the mourners are already in full throat. But Jesus takes Jairus and his wife and for whatever reason, Peter and James and John, and he walks past the mourners who mock him for his naivete. And the six of them walk into that quiet room where Jairus' daughter is lying dead, and Jesus stoops by the bed, and he takes the dead girl by the hand, and he says to her, little girl, get up. I mean, he uses the words that her mother would have used to wake her up in the morning. Little girl, get up. And Jesus reaches down into the fear, into the darkness, into the chaos, into the loss, into the alienation of death. And he quietly brings her back. And while everyone else in the room is just overcome, Jesus says someone should give her a bite to eat. She must be really hungry. This, this is who Jesus is. 
This is who Mark wants us to see that Jesus is. He wants us to see it so clearly. He's not a traveling wonder worker. He's not a traveling healer doling out the goods to whoever is lucky enough to be close to him at the time. He doesn't calm storms for parlor tricks. He doesn't exercise for the entertainment of the masses. And those, those would be really interesting stories at their very best, but they would never, ever, ever call us out of fear and into faith. Mark's trio of miracles, they're not about flash and they're not about wonder. They are about Jesus' identity. And Jesus makes this super clear, I think, by making the most astounding one. (laughs) Resurrection (laughs) happened with just a few people and he tells them to be quiet about it. And these two acts in particular speak into our rightful fear and disdain of death and loss and alienation and shame and suffering. They speak directly into our disdain of those things, into our suffering. And they call people like you and me out of that fear and into faith in him because these two acts are pointers to who who he really is, the only one who has power to defeat the last enemy and all of his filthy, filthy companions for good. He can tell that girl to get up out of death because he will lie down in death for her. And he can take that beautiful woman out from the margins and into the center. And he can take away her suffering and he can take away all of her shame and he can give her healing and peace because he is going to go outside to the margins, to where all of the suffering and the shame happens. And he's going to take her suffering and her shame and her alienation and her disease, and he's going to take it all on his shoulders and be overcome by them for her and for you and for me. Because his cross and his resurrection is where death will be destroyed, along with all of its life-taking companions, its life-sucking companions, and the sin that birthed it in the first place. That's who Jesus is, Mark is saying. Do not fear. Only believe. Let me pray for us. Father, you know uh, better than we know, and we actually know it pretty intimately, (laughs) how big fear is in our lives and how much it drives so much of what we do and how much life it sucks away from us, how much joy it sucks away from us, how much shame it brings. And so we ask, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus for who he is, the one who calls us out of that and into faith in him because he is the one who will put away all that brings us fear forever. Father, help us to cling to him in faith, even if it isn't super strong, even if it's not the kind of faith that's going to get us on TV. Help us to cling to him with whatever faith we have. Do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray in his name. Amen.